You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Uh, We're in a series, as many of you know, that uh, we're sort of in the back end right now, uh, a summer series on prayer. And what we've been doing as the speakers have come in, and I kick-started it way back in the early part of the summer, we're looking at various texts um, in the Old and New Testament, and we're trying to glean what we can, discover what we can on the topic and the practice of prayer. Um, I've been personally, and I can say this with integrity, I've been personally praying for us as a ministry that God would ignite in us a greater passion for prayer. Uh, I don't think that's a prayer that ever should go away. I, I don't think any of us arrive at a place where we go, I'm totally satisfied with my prayer life. But I've been praying for that a lot. Um, I would go up for morning hikes and I would be walking down and praying for us, praying for you, praying for me, that God would do that in us, Uh, again, both individually and corporately, that we would be a people quick to pray, pray for one another and uh, pray for this city, pray for our families and friends and so on. And we're going to continue over the next few weeks uh, by talking more about that. So maybe with that in mind, I'll pray and then we'll start walking through this fantastic chapter. Uh, So let's pray together. Uh, Father, we want to know you uh, as you are, uh, so that we can worship you as you deserve. Um, And and I I say that, I pray that, because that's certainly something that we're going to see in this text today. We're going to see Moses wanting to know more of you, and I, I want that to be our cry too. Show us more of you, Jesus, you said that no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son reveals. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal more of the Father to us today. Show us more of the Father. Jesus, you said in a parable that because your Father is a good Father, a loving Father, that when we come to him praying for more, he will give us more of the Holy Spirit. And all of those things that are part of the, the Holy Spirit, uh, we seek you, uh, Father. We, we come to you, Father, because we need you for in you we have our life and we move and we have our being. So we come to you today. Uh, with that being our ask, show us more, reveal more, stir in us a greater desire for more of you. And I pray for these things in the great and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Um, in this text, Exodus chapter 33, what we're going to be doing today is looking at one of the many recorded prayers of Moses that we see specifically in the first several books of the Old Testament. But what stands out about the one that we're looking at today is that it comes in the direct aftermath of that golden calf event. Um, It's an event, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's probably an event that most of you at least have some sense of, some idea of. Uh, But if you don't, uh, that's okay. Welcome here. Let me give you a quick flyover of that golden calf event so that we understand sort of what comes next in chapter 33. 
Uh, really quick, fly over the Israelite people, the Jewish people, uh, the Hebrew people, all synonymous terms. Those that have come out of the, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and A, uh, Jacob, they've been in bondage, slavery, for 400 plus years in the nation of Egypt, but God has rescued them. God rescued them through the servant leadership of, of Moses. He rescues them from this bondage. And what he does at, after they're rescued is he promised them, promises them a land, uh, the land of Canaan, uh, a land that God describes as flowing with milk and honey, which is just a nice poetic way of saying that it's opulent. You're going to flourish there. All of your needs are going to be satisfied there through me and the use of it. So it's a wonderful part of the story. I mean, God has rescued them. God leads them. God promises them. God provides for them. What a great God. That's that part of the story. But what happens next adds a lot of grief and the tragedy to it. Um, and it invades the story. What happens, what takes place is that on their way to the promised land, there's this interlude period where Moses is called up on top of a mountain where God gives him laws. He gives them the law and ordinances that the people of God were to follow. So not only does God rescue them and provide for them, God gives them a manual of sorts of, here's how to live your life. Here's how to live a life of flourishing. Here's how to live a life that pleases me. If you, if you do this, it will go well with you. But remember, God gives them the law after the rescue because the law never rescues us. God rescues us. The law leads us thereafter. And so they're given this law. Moses is up on the mountain. Two tablets are written on by God. But while this is taking place, the people who aren't on the mountain, obviously, get antsy. And they say to a man named Aaron, who is Moses' uh, deputy, his spokesman, they say to Aaron, we need you to fashion a God for us. In fact, specifically in Exodus 32.1, you can see there, they say to Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. Just think about what they're asking. I mean, it's silly. When you say something to a person, make us gods, that's silly. Makes no sense at all. If we can make a God, that's a God not worth following. But that's the request. Make us gods, Aaron, who will go before us. They still have a, a lot of Egypt in them. Because this is what they would have learned there. And they're conforming. They're showing a, a conforming to the people of Egypt and the ways of Egypt. Aaron, however, he complies. Surprisingly, in a sense. But I think we understand what it feels like to come under the influence of the pressure of the people who, who amongst us hasn't done that. But Aaron complies and he tells them to give him all of their jewelry, or at least some of it they give, and we'll see this pop up a little bit later. Give him their jewelry. He melts it down in a fire and he fashions a golden calf out of it. They take one look at this golden calf and this is what they say, and you can read this behind me. These are your gods, O Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Wow. That quickly. 
They, they turned from the God who had led them, and they turn now to these false gods, specifically this golden calf, and they declare, of this golden calf, this golden calf is now our God. He is the one who's led us out. It's amazing. God being God knows this is taking place. In fact, just to remind you, he's up on the mountain while this is taking place with Moses, and he's angry. In fact, he's burning hot. And he tells Moses to leave so that he can consume the people and make a great nation, start over, make a great nation out of Moses. What does Moses do? Well, in response, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, reminding God, as if he needed to be reminded, but reminding God of his promises and also reminding God that they were his people too. Not just Moses' people, they were his people. What does God do? Well, you can see in verse 14 of chapter 32, he relents. If you like that word or you like underlining words, underline that word, relents. He relents in light of this intercessionary prayer of Moses. Moses now, again, this is all background. Moses heads down the mountain. He's ticked too. He gets down to the bottom where the people are. Remember, he has these two stone tablets. He breaks the tablets in front of them as a picture, it seems, of them breaking the law. Long story short, he intercedes on their behalf again, and he asks God to forgive their sin, but he, he also says, if you choose to blot them out, God, then blot me out too. Remember that. God responds to Moses and says, I'll blot out who I choose to blot out. But then he leaves Moses with the following instruction. And again, you can read this behind me, second part of verse, or excuse me, first part of verse 34. Now go, lead the people to the place, that's the promised land, about which I have spoken to you. Behold, look, my angels shall go before you. Okay, that's set up. That brings us to chapter 33. Let's pick things up and let me read verses 1 to 3. It's so good to be back with you, by the way. This feels so good, man. I love doing this. Verses 1 to 3. The Lord said, again, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out all the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites. Unfortunate name. That's a bad name. The Hivites, and the Jebusites, and all the Mennonites. That's an old joke just to see if you're listening. Go up, verse 3. Go up to a land, here it is, flowing with milk and honey, opulence, provision, all of that. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> so now we enter chapter 33. The grief and the tragedy continues here as well. Chapter 32, that's where it begins. Just remember chapter 32. The, the perversion of the nation has come, right? They force, as I said, Aaron into making that golden calf. They worship it. 
They indulge in all the things that they learned from Egypt. All of this, and I have to say this because I know I'm introducing some things about God that some of you get uh, um, uncomfortable with, right? God consuming them, but understand they do all of this after God was so good to them. Soon after God had been so good to them. The good news, though, is that God relents from consuming them and he tells Moses to continue going to the promised land. And not only that, he would send an angel with them who would drive the people out that were now residing in Canaan. That's the Hittites and the Amorites and so on. That's great, but then God adds in verse 3, as I emphasized, he would not be going with them. Would that be good enough for you? I mean, you get everything. Right? You you don't even have to fight. I mean, you got to participate. We know the end of the story. But it's a guaranteed win. Angel going before them. Land promised. Provision. They wouldn't be consumed everything. They get everything. All the blessings, all the goods, all the promises, but you don't get God. So you get heaven, but God won't be there. Is that good enough for you? Would that be good enough for you? Here's why I ask the question. For for many professing Christians, Today, it seems that it would be. And I say that because when I hear some Christians describe their salvation, they talk about it more as being forgiven of their sins or one day going to heaven where they'll live forever and be reunited with those who have gone before them, their loved ones who have passed. And that's basically it. That's the story of their salvation. And seemingly, it seems, because that's what they bring up most often and first, that's what they're most excited about. But here's the thing, that's not salvation. Those are byproducts of salvation. In fact, they're on the front end, our sins being forgiven, our necessary elements leading to those promises, the sweetness of it, but that's not salvation. Listen to how Jesus, who you think would know about salvation, listen to how he describes salvation in his prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. So this is salvation. This is what it is, that they know you, that you is the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Jesus isn't saying he isn't God. What Jesus is saying is, I am the agent of salvation. If you don't know me, you don't know the Father. So knowing Jesus is necessary to knowing the Father. But this is eternal life, that they know you. This is it. Peter describes salvation this way and why Jesus came in 1 Peter 3.18 saying, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's you and me, that he might bring us to God. So do you hear that? 
Salvation, eternal life, the purpose behind the coming of Jesus is that we can know God, draw close to God, be in relationship with God. But I know the pushback, or at least the question that some may have, well, if I come to Jesus, won't my sins be forgiven? Well, absolutely and necessarily so, because it's our sins that separate us, alienate us, keep us from God. So the righteous died for the unrighteous so that separation, alienation would be removed so we could draw close to God. And and yes, and we're going to see that more in our text. And yes, when we come to salvation one day, we will enter God's full kingdom and we'll live there forever. But if God ain't in heaven, it ain't ain't heaven. And I know I just drove every English teacher crazy with what I just said, but it ain't heaven if God ain't there. Salvation, Emmanuel, is God with us and we with him. Salvation is God not just giving us creation and all the stuff with it, but giving himself to us, the creator Salvation and the beauty of it is God giving that which is greatest himself. And that's why I say the grief and the tragedy continues in chapter 33 because God says, I'm not going with you. I'm going to give you everything. But you're not getting me. That's tragic. Is God being pouty here? Like I see, just kind of hurt a little bit. He's just being pouty. Coming out of chapter 32, passive aggressive, maybe. I'm talking like a fool. Because the answer is no. He's actually giving them what they want here. As displayed by their actions in chapter 32. But what he's also giving them is what they need here. For it's here where they see the ramifications of their idolatry. If you want to exchange me for stuff, then I'll give you stuff. That's Romans 1, by the way. If you want this, if you want to exchange me for this, I'll give you that. But it's this that awakens them from out of their idolatrous stupor. And so in that, it's not an act of, Passive aggressiveness is an act of grace. It's also, one other thing, it's a display of God's all-consuming holiness. Because God couldn't merely go up with them and turn a blind eye to their sin. That would be an impossibility. That would demand that God not be God. In fact, and hear me, have I already taken 20 minutes? Doggone it. Hear me on this. This relenting of God, God being kept from consuming them in chapter 32. What, Midtown, think with me, what kept God from consuming them in chapter 32 based on them worshiping the golden calf? Well, the answer, hear me on this, is a mediator stepped in. And And what did that mediator offer to do? That mediator, if you take a look at verse 32 in chapter 32, he offered to be blotted out. Keep that in mind. More on that as we move ahead. 
The first glimmer, let's keep on going in verses 4 to 6. The first glimmer of good news shows up in verses 4 to 6. Let me read it. When the people heard this, this, this is the declaration of God that he wouldn't be going with them. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb, also known as Sinai, onward. Do you know what these verses are? What's taking place here? This is why I say it's the first glimpse of good news. This is repentance or the beginning of it. Why do I say that? Well, when hearing that God wasn't going with them, they respond, as we read in verse 4, with mourning. So what God, what, what God said to Moses and he relayed to them was received as a disastrous word and they mourned. That's good news. That's a good sign. It's a right start. But their repentance is further shown by not putting on their ornaments. What is that all about? Well, that's jewelry. They didn't put on their jewelry. From that moment onward, from the time Moses came down from Mount Oreb or Sinai, they stripped themselves of all their jewelry. What is this? What's going on? Well, just think about it. Let's do big, small group here. Where would a bunch of just freed slaves get a bunch of jewelry? Well, the answer is they get it from Egypt. You can read all about it in Exodus chapter 12. But thereafter, from Exodus 12, this isn't the first time that we read about their jewelry. Where, where do we read about their jewelry before this? Well, we read about their jewelry before this when Aaron said, hey guys, give me some of your jewelry that you got from Egypt. I'll throw it into the fire and I'll make a golden calf out of it. That's that jewelry. Obviously, though, they weren't sold out to that God either because they kept some back for themselves. <laughs> That's what's going on here. But who cares, right? It's just jewelry. No, it wasn't. It was a tie to their past. It was a tie to their past, a temptation to keep looking back to the past instead of the God of the future. The fact that God asked them to physically strip themselves of their ornaments was an outward sign of what he wanted to do in their hearts. That's what's going on here. This was a jewelry circumcision. They were to cut off every last vestige of their connection to Egypt. They weren't to be looking back. They were to be focusing what? Their eyes on Mount Sinai and the God who had met with Moses there, the God of their salvation. This is, why do I say this is repentance? This is repentance for repentance is not merely being sorry for what you did in the past. That's not repentance. That's mourning. Repentance is turning from the past 
and cutting off what so easily entangles us to the past. That's why I call this repentance. What ornaments are you hanging on to? Look, if I was leading a small group, I'd ask that question. I would kick back for five minutes waiting for you to think about it. Because that's an important question. What, what thing, what practice, what activity, what person, what relationship, what unforgiveness, what, what belief are you still holding on to, keeping you from moving onward and upward? Are you forgetting what lies behind and striving forward to what lies ahead? Or do you keep returning to what you've been freed from? Let's pick things up in verse 7 and read through verse 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, had no parents. It's another joke. It's cheesy. I haven't been with you for a while. I can get rid of all my cheesy jokes today. A young man would not depart from the tent. If you love the arts, you should love this. Like if you love a movie, good novel, prestige TV. Like if you love art, if you love a picture and, and the images on, on a, you should love this because this is theater. This is imagery. This is a picture being painted in vivid cover, colors. Why do I say that? Well, let me see if I, I can explain this. Go back to verse five. Just notice what God says in verse five. He says, and I'll paraphrase, I need to figure, I need, to, I need some time to figure out some things that I'm gonna maybe do with you. That's what he says in verse five. Get away from me. I need some time to figure things out. Think about that. When we hear God say, I need some time to figure things out, that should be a big flag for us that there's something more going on. Because God is God. He's all-knowing. He takes his counsel from no one. God doesn't need time to figure anything out. So what's going on? Why the time delay? Well, he's not deciding, he's waiting and he's waiting to see what the people, including Moses, do. And what do they do? Well, enter the movie being played out here. Because first off, what we read taking place is Moses pitches a tent called the Tent of Meeting. What is this tent? Well, it served as a sanctuary of sorts where the people would go to seek the Lord. But please notice in verse 7, where is this tent? 
It's emphasized big time. This tent is outside the camp, but not just outside the camp, far off from the camp. And so if people wanted to go to the tent of meeting to seek the Lord, they had to go far off outside the camp. What's going on? Why the emphasis? Well, going back to an earlier point, because that's what sin does. It separates us from God. It puts us far off and outside. And, and here's what I can do. I can tell you that in a sentence. Or I can have you see it being played out in vivid colors here. But it's saying the same thing. But what we also see being played out is that communication hadn't been totally broken off because space was still left for repentance. The, the withdrawal of God doesn't necessarily mean that this is the end of the day of grace, but also remember what God said in verse 5. Verse 5 is a really important verse. He said in verse 5 that his near presence, that if he was among them, in the state they were in, he would consume them because his holiness demanded it. He couldn't just ignore what they did. He would consume them. That's a big problem. That's a huge problem. So what hope did they have? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because the day of grace, which all repentant sinners enjoy... That, that forgiveness of that sin and sins that separate us from God, sin that deserves to be consumed and we with it, is one, how? By the intercession of another. Do you see the movie being played out, Midtown? Do you see the gospel in this? Someone God provides has to step in. And in the case of the Israelites, really quickly, that grace came by way of the intercession of Moses. And the, and the Israelites understood the place and the position of who Moses was. For where, whenever he went to the tent, all of the people stood up. They stood up, they went to the entrance of their personal tents, and they watched, and they worshipped. For when Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness, that represented the presence of God, would descend on the tent. Moses would go into the tent, and he would meet with God face to face. As it were, not literally, but speaking of intimacy and relationship, and I say not literally because of what we will see as we close and look at verse 20, but it is a relationship that's, a relationship that's different than others. It's intimate. It's face-to-face. -face. It's like a friend. That's how it's described here. Like a friend talking to another friend. I mean, what privilege. What honor. What opportunity. What motivation, right? Can you imagine being able to talk to the Lord friend to friend? What a privilege. What honor, what motivation to keep on praying 
and seek him the Lord. Not, not only for Moses, but for the people. One of those friend-to-friend conversations is recorded in verse 12 to 16. Take a look at it with me. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yeah, I know there's an angel going, but what kind of angel? Who is it? Yet you have said to me, Moses, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, God said to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here, us up from here, excuse me. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? There's a lot here. Uh, that I could take the time to highlight, but for the sake of time, let me just quickly point out just a few things. You can spend more time in it this week. But number one, please see that the relationship with God with Moses and Moses is based on grace. The relationship God has with Moses is based entirely on grace. The word favor comes up several times. We're going to see it again in verse 17. It's a synonymous term with grace. In fact, it's translated as grace in different places. And so Moses, why was Moses a friend of God? Why why was he known by God? Why did God know his name? Because of God's grace. And please hear me. The same is true of us. Secondly, our knowing God should lead, lead to a greater desire of knowing God. That's verse 13. When he says there, I know your ways, but I want to know more. That was the cry of Paul in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Is that your cry? I want to know more. I want to know more about, about my Lord while I was on holidays um, over the last number of weeks, I, I reread A.W. Tozer's classic, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's an easy read. Made it part of my devotional uh, in the morning. Uh, I commend it to you. It's easy. Just add it to your, to your morning reading or, or evening time or whatever. In the introduction, he writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I couldn't agree more. He goes on to write in the introduction, and you can read this behind me, for this reason, the gravest question before the church, me and you, is always God himself. And the most portentous or most important fact about any man is not what he is at a given time or may say or do, but what he he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And again, I agree. It's It's most important for what we know and believe about God will shape the entirety of our lives. And and I'm not talking about what we believe about God on a surface level or recite if somebody asks us a question. I'm talking about that belief, that, that revelation of God as he reveals himself to be, not how you conceive him to be, because how you conceive him to be will be shown in your life. But what we believe in the deepness of our heart 
is what we need to go after. Not just create God in our image like a golden calf, but go to the God who reveals himself in his fullness to us through the scriptures by way of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the most important thing about us because our whole lives will be shaped by that. Third thing to point out from this part of the text is, and this really fits in with this series on prayer, is that one of the great advantages of a friendship with God is that it enables us to intercede friend to friend on behalf of others. Do you hear that? By grace, Moses was a friend of God, and by the same grace, so are we a friend of God. No longer do I call you servants, Jesus says. You are my friends. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother or sister. There are many places in the scripture that tells us that God knows us by name. What an honor. What a privilege. What an opportunity. My question is whether that advantage you and I have is taken advantage of enough. As I said earlier, it has been a constant prayer of mine this summer that God would increase our passion for prayer as a community. There is nothing more important than we be a praying people, praying to a God that reveals himself to us. Have you ever heard of the word importune? Anyone? No one? Oh, one, two, eight. Good. We have one person. I never heard of it until this week. It, it means to harass. It, it means to persist in doing something. Reporters, for example, will importune politicians with questions. Write this down if you like writing things down. God loves to be importuned by our prayers. He wills to be importuned. Not, however, for his own sake, but for ours. He wants us to be fervent and persistent in prayer for, number one, the transformation of our characters. Number two, for the increase of our faith. Because every prayer Jesus says in one of the parables that he gives on prayer is an expression of faith. And for the intensifying of our sense of dependence upon him because he calls us every day to pray for our provision. Because what do we have that we do not receive? And especially, he wants us to be persistent in intercessory prayer, prayer for others, because we not only exercise our faith when we pray for others, we exercise our love for others. And so not only does our faith grow, our love grows, love for God grows, love for others grow, and when our love grows, we look more and more like God himself. So importune God with your prayers. And remember, we, we go to a friend when we pray. Friend to friend. Yes, he's the Lord. Yes, we go humbly. But he says, you're my friends. Come to me. Like if you knocked on my door or someone knocked on my door and, and I didn't know them and said, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? Can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? 
Where are you from? Are you a neighbor? Did you just move in? But if you came to my house and said, hey, man, my lawnmower's broken. What, can I borrow yours? Yeah, go ahead. You friend of mine? Take it. Yeah, have, have the best of times. <laughs> if you came to my house, knocked on my door and says, you know what? I have a friend. You've never met him. I have a friend. Lawnmower's broken. Can I borrow yours and let him use it? Friend of yours? Take my lawn. We have the opportunity, the privilege to go to our friend Jesus, Lord Jesus, brother Jesus, on behalf of others. Let's be a people that importune our friend Jesus for others. Moses' intercession for the people shows up in two ways. One, it's not enough that you go with me, you must go with us. That's what he says, God, you got to go with us. And two, if you don't go with us, then how would we be at all distinct from anyone else? I mean, even if you send an angel and the angel sends everybody out and we walk into that land, we're no different. It's just the Hittites, the Amorites, and now the Israelites. It's God with us that gives us distinction. So to us, Midtown, as Christians in this city, what makes us distinct in this city is that God is with us and in us. And I say that as encouragement. I say that as exhortation. It should give us comfort because sometimes when we live in this city and we listen to what's going on, I'm like, this is nuts. Anybody in control? Yeah, God's in us. God's with us. God's the Lord of this city. But it's also a challenge that we aren't to be people marked by the ornaments from our past. Not to look like the Canaanites. We're to look different, be in, but set apart for the glory and the name of him. Okay. Almost done. Come to the best part. God responds to this intercessory prayer of Moses in verse 17, and he says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I do know you by name. This leads to one final ask, and we'll wrap up with it, and then we'll respond. Moses said, please show me your glory. Wow. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. That's why I say verse 20 tells us that the previous verse about face to face, not literal, speaking about relationship. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So what's going on here? Well, as we know, Moses prays, show me your glory. It's a great ask. Reveal, I want to sh- see all of you. No more veil. I've gotten a sense, show me everything. It's a great ask, but Moses doesn't know what he's asking for because he doesn't realize that no one, not even Moses in his current state of the flesh can see God God face to face or in his glory and live. But what God says in response is he, he partly concedes and he says, essentially, I will give you a glimpse of my glory 
And in that, Moses will be privileged to see something no other human has seen of God, yet even he will not see or know all there is to know about God. It's an amazing and unprecedented encounter between a human and God, but in but a part of God's glory, goodness, and name will remain unknown and unseen, and that remains with us today. Dimensions of God and his ways in the world remain mysterious, elusive, and incomprehensible. Timothy writes about this very quickly in the last part of his first epistle. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we see in a mirror dimly now, but what we do know and what we get to see is enough for the journey to continue until the return of Jesus. There is so much in this last section that I have to gloss over and uh, for the sake of this morning, ignore, but I feel okay about that because as we move to respond and as we are invited to this table, I'm going to end with the all-important question that comes out of this passage. What we see here. What is that all-important question? What needed to happen for Moses to get a glimpse of the glory of God. What had to happen? He had to do three things. First, he had to stand on the rock that God provided. Verse 21. Second, he had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. Verse 22. And third, he had, huh, he had to be covered while in the rock. Second part of verse 22. If he did those things, he would get a glimpse, a remnant, an afterglow of the glory of God. Verse 23. And it's here where Jesus invades Exodus 33. For who is the rock? The rock is Christ, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The one that what? We are to stand on. The one the Father provides. The one that we are to build our lives on. He is our rock, and he is our fortress. But Moses was told not only to stand on the rock, he was told that he would be put in a cleft, in a rock, in the rock. What's a cleft? Well, it's a division. It's a split. It's a hole. You've heard of a cleft palate, perhaps. So this rock has a split in it. It's divided. Perhaps a rock that had been struck in anger for the saving of many lives. The song we sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. 
Paul writes in Colossians 3 that we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And it's in Jesus, hidden in Christ, where we are covered and protected by God so that when we one day gaze at the full, full glory of God in our transformed bodies, we won't be consumed by his glory and holiness. We'll stand in awe of it, and we will stand face to face, literally, all because of the rock. You see, Midtown, as we close and we respond, and thanks for hanging in with me a little longer this morning. Their sin and rebellion, please hear this. Their sin and rebellion and idolatry and ours deserves to be rightly judged because God is a holy God and consumed. But God, in Exodus 32, relented. But he didn't relent in Exodus 32 because of the intercessory and mediative work of Moses. He relented because of the one Moses pointed to. The better mediator. The better Moses. The better intercessor. Jesus, the one who didn't merely pray for us, but gave himself up for us, the one who blotted himself out for us, the one cleft for us. God, as it were, in Exodus 32, overlooked their sin, looking ahead to a time where in Jesus, his righteousness would be revealed. The payment for our sin satisfied. And his grace and mercy and loving kindness all offered to those who come to him. Separated now, but the day of grace is not over. Seek him. Go to him. He's near. Go to him. Go to Jesus, the word that became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.